Father, as we gather here today as your people, I pray that our meeting would be pleasing to you. Father, that your word would be preached, that your word would be heard, that your word would be heeded. Father, my brother Conway and myself, we need help. Father, we need empowerment. We need, we need much. Father, we need help in living the life that you want us to live. Father, your people need help. We know that you have provided much. You have given us your spirit. Father, we need more of your spirit. Father, fill this place with your spirit. Father, help your people. Father, help us to obey. Help us to love more. Help us to love better. Help us to love well. Help us to do those things that you command us to do. Father, I, I remember what our, our forefather Augustine prayed. Command what you will and grant what you command. Father, we need help today in Christ's name. Amen. We'll be in Exodus today. Exodus chapter 2. I'm not going to discuss the whole chapter, but I would like to read the whole chapter. Exodus chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took, him for, a, took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. 
When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave his Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Where I'm going to be in this hour is the last three verses of the chapter, verses 23 through 25. And verses 23 through 25 at the end of the day are all about God and God's character. And that's where I'd like to focus our time here in this hour is on God and his character in this passage. Because this passage is really not about Moses or about Israel. It's about God. So the you know the story here. You know that this is where God's people have ended up after Joseph brought the 70 members of, his, uh, of the family of, of Jacob into, into Egypt, and Israel multiplied, and Pharaoh didn't like it, and here we end up with the people in slavery, and what's going to happen? We know that this passage talks about God remembering his covenant with Abraham, and I'm going to spend some time on remembering the covenant here in a few minutes. But we know that when, when God made the covenant with Abraham, he already told Abraham that your people are going to be in captivity for 400 years. What is the implication there? The implication is, okay, at the end of 400 years, they're going to be released from captivity. It's been 400 years. They're still in captivity. Why are they not released from captivity? Well, they're not released from captivity because verses 23 through 25 had not yet happened. Think about back to when we talked about the story of Hezekiah and the God of Assyria. I mean, the king of Assyria. They know, God's people knew, Hezekiah knew, the Assyrians were coming. Tens of thousands of them. And Hezekiah knew that they were in trouble. And Hezekiah gets told by Isaiah in Isaiah 36, it's already been determined that God's going to take care of this. Okay, so what does Hezekiah do? Is Hezekiah supposed to sit on the throne, put his feet up in, 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 his, in his kingly lazy boy and just wait for God to move? No. Hezekiah got told to pray. And Hezekiah prayed. And we know the account tells us that God did deliver Hezekiah and God's people from becoming Assyrians, but only because, as Scripture says, because you have prayed. Even though it was planned, here you've got God's predetermining what's going to happen and the means by which it's going to happen at the same time. God commands us to pray. Whatever you see in your Scripture that you know God has determined an outcome for, we are still supposed to pray for the outcome. 
everything. So Hezekiah prays. God takes care of the Assyrians, 185,000 of them. You know the story. It's the same thing here. We know that God has already told Abraham when he made the covenant with him back in, in Genesis 15 that you're, you're going to be in captivity 400 years. Well, it's now been 400 years. Okay, word still travels down the genealogical grapevine over 400 years, and they still knew what was going on. They still would have known what, what the covenant with Abraham was. It's been 400 years. Why are we still here? Well, <laughs> the issue is not so much why they're still there. The issue is that they're still there. They are still in captivity during these many days, as verse 23 says. Because that covenant with Abraham also in Genesis 15, in the next verse, in verse 14, says God was going to judge those people. But it happens through means. It happens through God's people here groaning, crying out. Slavery was no fun. We know that. They groan, they cry out. And how does God answer their prayer? Well, we, we know that this passage tells us that God remembered the covenant, but how did he actually answer the prayer in time and space? Genesis 3. Moses at the burning bush. That's the answer. He now calls Moses. Moses has this in, in, encounter in the burning bush with the pre-incarnate Christ. Remember, who do, who do I say sent? Who's, who's sending me? Tell them I am. And Jesus uses that about himself in John 8.58. And the Jews knew exactly what he was saying about himself, which is why they wanted to stone him. Jesus is referring back to himself here in John 8.58 when he goes to Exodus 3.14. I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. That's the answer to the prayer here in verses 23 through 25. When we pray, when we cry out, when we have need, does our God hear? Yes, he not only has divine ears that hear what we pray, that's not the sense of what this is talking about in the passage. Because the passage tells us that God does four things here. What does God do? God hears, God remembers, God saw, and God knew. Nothing has changed. When God's people call upon God in prayer, the same thing happens today. God hears. God remembers, God sees, and God knows. We can pray just like Israel prays here, knowing that the character of God is such that he responds in the same way to us because we are still his covenant people. You, you may hear us say from this pulpit, or you may hear in, in casual conversations, that we do not ascribe to a system known as covenant theology. Now, I have many, many well-respected men in my mind, in my library, dead and alive, who would be covenant theologians. Don't dismiss it. <laughs> Don't dismiss that, that or the men. Don't. Even though we may not say that we are covenant theologians, I will say that we do have a theology of the covenants. 
because you can't read your Bible without one. Don't dismiss the covenants. We are a covenantal people. We sit here today worshiping God through faith in Jesus Christ because of covenants. Because God gave covenants to His people. God keeps His covenants and will go there. God gives covenants. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on all the covenants, but you think about the covenants in Scripture. Covenant with Noah. Why hasn't the earth flooded again? Because God made a covenant and said it won't happen again. What covenant did God give God's people at Mount Sinai? What we call the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant. Do we live in light of that today? Yes, we do. Even though the covenant has been made obsolete, we live in light of having it been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. So that covenant matters to us. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God gives David a covenant. What's the covenant? I will raise up a king over your house, and his throne will endure forever. Did he? Yes, we live in light of that covenant. We have King Jesus reigning forever. And then we have what we know as the new covenant given to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 32. That covenant that says, no longer is the law going to be written on tablets of stone, it's going to be written on your heart. And I will forgive your sins and remember them no more. We live in light of that covenant. So don't for a minute think that we are not covenantal people just because we may not ascribe to a certain system of interpreting our Bibles. Our Bible is covenantal from beginning to end. And our salvation is covenantal because God gave covenants. And when God gives a covenant, when He says, I will fill in the blank, He will. Even if He says, I will not flood the earth. He will not flood the earth again because He said He won't. Because our God cannot lie. When He makes a covenant, whether He says, I will not or I will, He will fulfill that covenant. Now, when He says to Abraham what He says to Abraham in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and Genesis 22, do we live in light of that? You bet we do. He's going to give Abraham offspring. Your Bible in your New Testament says Abraham's sons are sons by faith. And they're by faith in the promised Messiah. We live in light of the promise to Abraham. When we read those promises to Abraham in the covenants, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22, we're in that covenant. The father of many nations. We're recipients of that covenant blessing. Now, did we have to believe? Yes. But why do we believe? Because God gave us the faith with which we believe. He sees to it that His people do what they're supposed to do in fulfilling that command and that covenant. Why did we repent? Because God granted us repentance. Were we still responsible for believing and repenting? Yes. But we know theologically it happened because God gave it to us as a gift. So don't, don't throw out the covenantal baby with the bathwater here. 
covenants matter greatly in the Scripture. And since they matter greatly in the Scripture, they ought to matter greatly to us. And here, when these people cry out, they cry out and God remembers His covenant. Now, it's not like God had, God had forgotten it. Okay? Like forgetting to text somebody back. <laughs> okay? You know, or, or, or forgetting to take the garbage out. God never forgets anything. So we don't, have to, we don't have to worry about, hey, God, God, you know, you said you'd do this, and, and God never goes, oh, I forgot. No, he doesn't forget. He knows everything. He doesn't forget. So this is, a, this is a figure of speech here, really. It's an idiom that we'll talk about. But when we pray, do we pray to a God like the God in, in 1 Kings 18 that the prophets of Baal prayed to? Did their God hear? Did their God remember? Did their God see? Did their God know? No. You, you look at the things they did. They cry out. They cut themselves with their swords. And, and, then, I, and, then, and then Elijah engages in a little trash talking there if you read the, the passage in, verse, in 1 Kings 18. But why did, the, why did the God of the prophets of Baal not respond? Because He's no God at all. A God that is not a God is not a God, and a God that is not a God cannot, cannot hear, remember, see, and know. Gods that you can pick up and set here on the pulpit and move and put in the trunk of your car, <laughs> they're no gods at all because they're gods made by men. Did the God of the prophets of Baal create creation out of nothing by speaking? No. Could He? No. Does the God of the prophets of Baal sustain the universe by the word of His power? No. Why? He can't. He's no God. Can the God of the prophets of Baal do satisfy the elements of the challenge in 1 Kings 18? No. You read it and you see how, how, how Elijah says, let's up the ante here when it's my turn. Pour water on the wood. Pour more water on the wood. Elijah calls upon his God, and his God, our God, answers now. That's our God. That's the God who remembers his covenants. And his covenants involve people. They're not nebulous, formless covenants that do not involve specifics. His covenants involve specific people. When he makes the covenant with Abraham, Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. It's not as if God just makes the promise and goes, I don't know who they're going to be, but there's going to be a lot of them. No, he knows them all by name. Well in advance, of their birth in time and space. He knows them all by name. His covenants, they may appear general, but they contain specifics. You can sit here today knowing that that covenant with Abraham concerned you. You can sit here today knowing the covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7 
concerns you because that's your king reigning over the house of David. You know that the covenant given to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31, that concerns you. Not just them, it concerns you. And you can call upon the covenants. You see, you see in Scripture that, that what people do is they, they, they call upon God to remember the covenants. Now, I'm not going I'm to read a lot of these, but you think about God remembers covenants. And you see people in Scripture asking God to remember them. Hannah asked, remember me. Nehemiah asked, remember me. Job asked, remember me. And you know the thief on the cross asked, remember me. Again, remember here is sort of idiomatic because it's not just, hey, what you forgot, I want you to remember now. No, when you remember a person, okay, you are treating them in a special way. When the covenants get remembered, when one, one theologian says, quote, to say that God remembered His covenant is to say that God decided to honor the terms of His covenant at this time. Yes, remember the covenant. We can pray just like these people prayed, and we can use this passage in our prayers. God, remember Your covenant. Remember what You've promised to us. Because God is a God of His Word. He cannot lie. So when He says, I will, He will. Therefore, call upon His I wills when you pray. Call upon His I wills when we live. These, these, these I wills when... Because He hears. I know we've talked before about Him inclining His ear. That if you look at, at, at Psalm 34.7, if you want to turn there, 34.17 rather, it's about the righteous crying for help. Now, I, I, want to, I want to emphasize here, we shouldn't just be crying for help when times are bad. What we tend to do is only cry for help when times are bad. But we need to cry for help when times are good. Psalm 34, 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord hears. You know, you know, you know how this works. You say something to your children. Do this. And they don't do that. And you say, didn't you hear me? Well, yes, they heard you, but they didn't heed you. <laughs> That's not what's going on here. God, of course, hears our prayers because He hears our prayers even if we don't make them audibly. He hears our prayers even if they're made only in our heart. And nobody hears our prayers in a human sense, but God hears our prayers because all we have to do is think it and He knows. But He does help. And, and what I wanted to say about praying not just in times of need, I want to go to Proverbs 30. Proverbs 30, verse 7. 
I know we pray in desperate times. But what about in prosperous times? Proverbs 30, verse 7. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Now we'll pray when we're poor. We'll pray when the cabinets in, in your kitchen are empty. There's no food in your pantry. But what about praying when they're full to overflowing? God, don't let me be full and deny you. Don't let me forget why the pantry is full. Because if we forget that the pantry is full, he may well see, it, see to it that the pantry becomes empty. To remind us. Relying on God in prayer, not just when things are hard, but when things are well. But we, we get it in relying upon God when things are not well. I mean, that's, that's one thing about, the, uh, about evangelism in the correctional environment. It's, pe people say, it's got to be hard in there. Well, in one sense it is, but in another sense it isn't because you know what happens when people come to the end of themselves and they lose everything? They see that their plan isn't working. And they have nowhere else to turn. What do you do when you've lost your freedom, you've lost your wife, you've lost your kids, you've lost all of your possessions, and all you have is the clothing that the state has given you and the bed that they tell you you're going to sleep on? That's a very fertile environment for the gospel because it brings men and women to the end of themselves. When you have somebody telling you five times a day when you've got to sit on your bunk because they're going to count you and you don't have any say in the matter, and if you disobey, they have a special bunk for you in what is uh, nicely politically called administrative segregation, better known as the whole. They'll tell you, okay, you don't like this bunk, We've got another one for you. When that happens, when you're in that environment and you realize this is because of what you have done, not because of what somebody did to you, but when you, you, the men or the women realize, I'm here because of my wickedness, and they realize their wickedness, then they call out to God, God, help me, God, save me. That's why the environment is fertile. Now, I know we do that in our time of need, but do we do it in our time of plenty? I just want to remind us to be calling upon God not just in times of need, but in times of plenty as well. So to get back to Exodus chapter 2, God's people are in need. What do they do? They call upon God. Now, we don't see that they have said, remember the covenant. <clears throat> But by their calling upon God, God responds by remembering His covenant with them. And, and God remembers His covenant quite frequently in Scripture. You'll, you'll read your Scripture, do your word search, and see how often it is said that God keeps covenant. God is a covenant-keeping God. You and I know some people would refer to, to marriage as a covenant, as a covenantal arrangement. When man and woman stand before somebody or somebody's, 
whether you stand before three people or you stand before one person or, or, or two people, and you make this commitment to each other, you may think the audience is small, even if you're just there with the justice of the peace, or if you're in a building with 300 people, that couple makes that covenantal agreement, not just before the man, but they always have to keep in mind they're making that covenantal agreement in the eyes of God. Remember that. <laughs> God knows when we make commitments. You know when you make a commitment to your spouse there that you are going to do A, B, C, D, E through Z and into the double A's and double Z's sometimes. But you know what you promised your spouse. And you know there are times that you don't do that perfectly. Now, I, I, I know people don't intend to not do it perfectly, but they do at times. However, God always does it perfectly. That's why you can trust God. Because God never falls this much short of keeping a promise. That's why He is to be our portion. Think about the times in Scripture beyond the story of Martha and Mary and the, Lord, and, and the Lord being portion. What was Aaron's portion? Aaron's portion was the Lord. Because they didn't have any stuff. That's pointing forward to us. Aaron was the high priest. We don't have an office of high priest now. We are all priests. The priesthood of all believers. 1 Peter 2. You are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen nation, a people for His own possession. Is the Lord our portion? And do we trust Him enough to be our portion? To be that which is all we truly need? Does He satisfy us enough to be our portion? That's the way it's supposed to be. He is supposed to be our portion. He was Aaron's portion, Numbers 18. How about here in the New Covenant? Is He our portion? Is the Lord our portion? Supposed to be. Here, Exodus 2, these people had no other hope. Okay, What kind of army could they call upon to get them out of Egypt? They didn't have an army. They didn't have military allegiances. They didn't have political alliances. They didn't have an election in November coming up where they can get a better pharaoh in office. All they had was the Lord and His promises. At the end of the day, that's all we have. Because everything else can perish. All of our stuff can go away. Our spouse can die. Our friends can desert us. But our Lord will not die. Our Lord will not desert us. Our Lord will not keep His covenant with us. Would that we would see that our need is as great as Israel's is here. Because our need is not God and anything. The Lord and anything. Our need is the Lord and the Lord alone. Israel here. Why do they cry out? They've been there 400 years. Think about 400 years of history. 
400 years ago, the King James was a brand new Bible. <laughs> One of those new translations, okay? <laughs> the people who came to our country as what we know as the pilgrims, they, for the most part, didn't bring the King James with them. They brought the Geneva Bible. But think about how long 400 years ago is. I mean, the Declaration of Independence, 1776, what, 247 years ago. These people were in captivity for 400 years. What hope did they have of getting out of there? They weren't just going to pick up and pack their bags and march out of Egypt. They had to call upon something outside of themselves. And there's nothing different today. We are still to be calling on that, or better, who is outside of ourselves. Because we have nothing to really sustain us in this age and the age to come than the Lord who is outside of ourselves in that sense. And Israel here, as they cry, remember, they groan, they cry. God hears. God remembers. Do you really think that God is going to forget about you if you're one of His children? I know some people who really, if they will admit it, think that way. Well, I'm not as much of a child as somebody else. I'm not as much of a child. You know, well, John MacArthur's a lot more of a child of God than I am. Get that thought out of your head right now. Paul Washer's more of a no. Where do you see that? That, there's a, <laughs> that, that there, are, there are people who are more of a child of God than anybody else. What does God have? Sons by adoption. End of discussion. Because He chose to adopt you. Some people He doesn't choose to adopt. Why? Because He hasn't set His love on them. Why? I don't know. <laughs> <clears throat> but embrace the love He has given you. Embrace that adoption. It's a gift. It's yet another gift of God. You think about this. That that I mean, I can go back to the uh, to the issue of of our of our daughter doing the embryo adoption. They had to pick some embryos. That meant that they didn't pick other embryos. It's not that. I know the analogy is going to break a, fall apart, but that's what analogies do. <laughs> that's what makes them analogies. But they had to pick some embryos. That means they're not picking from the other thousands of embryos. Does that mean that they don't care about the other thousands of embryos that are in that freezer? No, but they could only pick so many. But they did pick them and... They love those two children just as much as their natural children because they've set their love on them. They've made a choice. <clears throat> we are going to love these two children just as much and in the same way as our five naturally born children, even though the children were not conceived by the union of our daughter and her husband but they look at them as theirs. We belong to God. We're a people for His own possession. Do you think He really has 
people that oh, he just shoves back in the corner. No. It's his people that he loves. And his people is made up of a group of individuals. And he loves all of the individuals in his people. Don't think he doesn't love you. <clears throat> Jesus died for you. Jesus rose for you. Jesus ascended for you. And he's coming back for you. And he's going to gather you along with all of his people for all of eternity. Think about, think about how often. Why, why do you think in Psalm 136, what's repeated 26 times in Psalm 136? The steadfast love of the Lord. How long does it last? Forever. You know that repetition in Scripture is there for emphasis. Do you? It's it's not there. That is not that's not vain repetition. That is there for emphasis. Twenty six times. How many verses are in Psalm one thirty six? Twenty six. Every time, every sentence there ends with that statement about the steadfast love of the Lord never ceasing or lasting forever. That's the love that he set upon this stiff-necked people <laughs> in Exodus 2. And it's that same love that he set upon you all here today. Our God hears you. He hears you when you pray. He hears us when we live. He hears everything. And He remembers. He will remember you when you need help. And you and I need help when times are bad and when times are good. And you and I know that God sees. Says The passage says God saw the people of Israel. Again, it's just not a matter of having them within His field of vision. Because did He see the people of Egypt as well? Yes, the seeing there has has some meaning. If, you, if, if, if we'd go on a little farther into Exodus, we would see the statement made that God saw their affliction. Well, of course He saw their affliction, if you're just talking about vision, because He sees everything. Because He's omniscient. He knows everything. He sees everything. Nothing or nobody can hide from Him in creation. But He saw their affliction. And by seeing the affliction with his divine eyes, that means he will respond to their prayer about the affliction. And that, that last phrase, in, in the ESV anyway, you can look at it and go, and God knew? <laughs> what does that mean? Well, of course, God knew. He knows everything. You look at other translations. What does the NASB say? The NASB says God took notice of them. King James, God had respect unto them. New King James, God acknowledged them. And the Berean standard says God took notice. Is that the same word that's used when we see Adam knew Eve? Yes, it is. Well, then what does it mean here, though? It means, in the sense, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it, it has to do with God acknowledging what's going on. 
God noticing what's going on and God acknowledging what's going on and God then responding to what is going on. Whatever's happening in your life today, God knows. When we call out, God knows. God hears. God sees. God remembers. This goes, at the end of the day, to who God is. Who do you really believe God to be? Who do you believe the Lord to be? What do you believe about His essence, about His character, about the way He interacts with His people, about the way He governs His creation? Do you really, really, really trust Him? Because you know that even the, the human person that you may trust the most, even though they may never have let you down, they still have the capacity to let you down. There's always the possibility that your most trusted friend can let you down. Our Lord does not have that capacity. It's not in His nature. And it is not just that He doesn't choose to not let people down. He doesn't choose to not let people down or not keep His promises because He can't do that. When He says, I will... He can do nothing but I will. When He says I will not, He can do nothing but I will not. And that's hard for us to grasp because we tend to make God like us. We can tend to think, well, yeah, I know the promises, but. Don't say the but. <laughs> Psalm 50. Remember, God tells His foes, you thought I was just like you. He's not just like us. He keeps His promises. He keeps His promises perfectly. He never forgets. He sees. He hears. He knows. He cares. He loves. A steadfast love that endures forever. You can have confidence in Him, in Him alone. Because He will keep His promises in a way that no man or no woman can or no man or no woman will. And He wants us to look at Him that way. He wants us to look at Him as a promise keeper. He wants us to trust Him because He's trustworthy. He wants us to look at Him as the faithful one because He is faithful. He wants us to look at Him as the truly righteous one because He is the truly righteous one. He wants us to look at Him as the holy, holy, holy one because He is the holy one of Israel. Our challenge is to do it. Our challenge is to be people like what we see in Exodus 2, verses 23-25. through 25. People who know that God sees our affliction, but also people who know that God sees our prosperity. God sees all, and He wants us to trust Him in all. Praise God for who He is. Now, I just want to close on a personal note here. I want to uh, thank the congregation for the, the gift that was voted upon last week. Um, you've been more than generous to me, my wife, over the years. Um, today's February 4th. Ten years ago, 
February 4th, an old couple from Michigan arrived in Texas, moving to a foreign land. <laughs> where the natives think quite highly of themselves because they're Texans, okay? <laughs> but we moved here, not real, other than knowing my brother-in-law who lives in Florida, we literally didn't know anybody south of South Bend, Indiana in this country. The closest child of ours lives as you drive 1,200 miles away. That means the closest grandchild is 1,200 miles away. Grandma gets it. You know, at times it's been hard over 10 years being separated from your family. Um, early on, we, we decided we did not have family here. So we took it upon ourselves to adopt some members of the congregation. My wife said, let's, let's adopt some daughters. We did. Okay, one of them did not have auburn hair like she does now. Um, and then, so we adopted Nellie, we adopted Holly. Holly goes and gets married on us. <laughs> so over time, you, you, adopt, you adopt some others. You adopt Jacinda, you adopt Shamika. We adopted Demi, even though Demi didn't fill out the paperwork. <laughs> we adopted Faith for a short time. Faith goes and gets married on us. Nellie goes and gets married on us. You know, but not just them, but I mean the congregation's been very helpful to us as family over 10 years. I want to thank you all. The Conways get it being separated from your children and being separated from your grandchildren. She's nodding in agreement here. I mean, it's just not the same. As, mu as much as technology helps, it's just not the same, isn't it? When I see grandma walking around carrying a grandchild, okay, it's just not the same. When our daughter sends us a video yesterday of Bennett, one of the embryo adoption babies, she says, well, Bennett will only sleep with the uh, Mr. Mr. Verde, Mr. Green, okay, little stuffed animal. So she showed us this video of him, him being carried in, put in his crib, and they've got several little stuffed animals there. And he won't be two until May. She sets him in there, and there are three or four stuffed animals in there, and he reaches down, and he picks up every other stuffed animal, throws it over the rail, grabs Mr. Verde, and plops down on his pillow to go to bed. Now, video conveys that, but it's just not the same. But people sitting in this room are our earthly family here in Texas. And we want to thank you. The last couple years have been hard. I'm not going to lie. Last couple years have been very, very hard. But you all have helped. And I just pray that you continue to help this old couple here in Texas, because we need your help. We need your help to get to the end. You've heard me say it before. Too many people my age drift and end up not making it. They did well for 40 years, and then something happens and they start drifting. We need your help in getting to the end. We need your prayers. 
I don't think it's wrong for us to pray, come Lord Jesus. Let's not rely just upon what has been predestined. We know that that day is fixed. But John says, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray that Jesus Christ come back. And I just want to thank you all. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you are, you are our portion. Father, we need help in, in recognizing and living that. Father, give us that faith that we need. Father, help us, help us to pray just not in time of desperation or in time of financial or physical or, or, or when there's no food in the cabinets, but Father, help us to pray when things are going well when our souls are at peace, when there's food in the cabinets. Father, we, we, we want to pray and we want to live well. We want to acknowledge you for all things because we know that without, without you, we can do nothing. We have nothing. Everything that we have, we have received. Father, help us to be grateful for the bountiful, wonderful gifts that are contained in the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen.